Hi, listeners. Do we have a surprise for you today? You know your water-conscious captains care about your water quality. That's why we're so happy to let you know that you have won a new water filtration system. All we need for you to do is sign this power of attorney. I mean, this L47. Wait, wait, guys. I got all worked up there. Let's just do a deep dive into why you should not always do what I say in my opens. Guys, we've got another Captain exclusive interview today. Let's start the show. Excuse me. Hi. I'll be right with you, sir. I need some new headphones, and I can't find the guy on Facebook Marketplace I bought the last ones from. Sir, this is an AT&T store. Please wait your turn. I know, but this is an emergency. Hey, buddy. Ever heard of lying? Ever been dragged to the sidewalk and beaten until you pissed blood? (laughs) I can help you over here. Listen, I'm sorry. I just need my AirPods. Some guy sold them to me out of the back of his truck, and they were the only thing that really worked. Here's the package, so clearly I'm allowed to have them. I just need a couple to get them through the weekend. Let me see. Uh, yep, these are uh, Google Pixel Buds. Bullshit, man. <laughs> They're my AirPods, and you sold them to me. Uh, sir, this is the package from Pixel Buds. I'm sorry. They're right over there in the Android display. See for yourself. No, 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 it can't be. I'm an Apple man. The only thing I can cover my right now is that G, tell us why we're watching this movie. All right, I had to go back to the Slack thread to see how this movie came about. <laughs> Long story short, we voted on a couple of subjects and movies where bad guy wins came out on top. But I'm still not sure how this movie beat out No Country for Old Men in Chinatown. <laughs> We'll blame it on ranked choice voting. Maybe it's not the best idea. Who knows? Bunch of New Yorkers say the same thing. Sorry. Johnny Dangerous, I just want you to give me some pills. Tell me who's in the director's chair and let me get on with my life. We are talking about a very highly regarded director, none other than Ridley Scott, who turns 84 years young next month. He got his start in the industry by working for the BBC as a set designer. Later, he started an advertising production company with his younger brother, Tony. That company, RSA, has come up before on TMC, as they made that famous Apple 1984 Super Bowl commercial from our deep dive on Steve Jobs. In the late 70s, he began directing feature films and has completed 25 so far. His movies have typically been financially successful, and he has been Oscar-nominated several times. Some of his well-known titles include Alien, Thelma and Louise, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, The Martian, and our very first Too Many Captains episode, Blade Runner. Do you guys have any thoughts on Rid? Cool name. (laughs) Alien or Aliens? Which is better? Aliens is better for me. I think so too. So score one for Cameron. (laughs) (laughs) If I had to put up whole cannons, I think I would go Ridley Scott over James Cameron. You haven't seen the the final 12 Avatar movies, <laughs> yeah. though. I have no interest in them either. There's 12 more Avatar movies? No, there's like four or five. 12, or 12 more hours, like maybe. <laughs> I like Ridley Scott. I think he does good work. Yeah. It's usually always entertaining or at least worth a watch. I agree. 
we're getting kind of a nice balance here because we did something that was much earlier in his canon and then kind of a more maybe not recent but definitely more modern movie matt did you have any luck searching the world wide web for things that happened when the movie came out that internet thing that's a fad i can't figure it out sure sure you remind me of bryant gumbel in the famous <laughs> today show scene you gonna at me what's that mean <laughs> the movie was originally released back on september 12th 2003 here in the u.s so the United Nations lifted sanctions against Libya after the country agreed to accept responsibility and compensate the families of victims from the 88 bombing of Pan Am Flight 103. Also, really big thing happened on this day. Johnny Cash passed away. Wow. At the Man age of black. 71 from complications of diabetes. Uh, and this was just four months after his wife died. So... June Carter. Man, just a lot going on. It was also two years and a day after 9-11. The country is still... So know. did Will Smith or did... Is he? Is that who played him in his biography? Will Smith played... The Men in Black? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones, okay. <laughs> I had to think about it for a second. <laughs> Here comes a minute. Sorry. Yeah, so interesting time. I mean, Johnny Cash, obviously a legend. Country was a really weird point. Lots going on around the world. Bomb in Afghanistan. That journey was just beginning. Yeah, early days of two wars. Who would have thought? Yeah, and uh, and the Iraq war was on the horizon. The search for those weapons. All right, so let's just keep the show rolling. Let's talk about the casting and box office breakdown money. This movie's got a lot of dinosaur bone ownership in it with <laughs> Nicolas Cage. Rage Cage, they call him. No, they don't. Sam Rockwell, who just kind of fits any character, I feel like. Allison Lohman as his daughter. Spoiler alert, not really his daughter. What? <laughs> Bruce Altman as Dr. Klein and Bruce McGill as Chuck. Gotta have a couple of Bruces. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce on Bruce action, that's for sure. <laughs> Anybody else have any cast that they wanted to mention? Well, we have three new inductees in the Saw M. Todd, and it's all three of our leads. Allison Lohman, we last saw in Big Fish. Sam Rockwall, who played multiple characters in Moon. And Nicolas Cage was H.I. in Raising Arizona. And as for another actor, I wanted to throw a shout out to a that gal. Veteran character actor Beth Grant. She played the woman in the laundromat who gets conned. You have seen and loved her in everything from Donnie Darko, Speed, No Country for Old Men, Little Miss Sunshine, and countless other films and television series. Tree of Life? Yep. Saw him, Todd. <laughs> She's in too now. Yep, that's another one. That is such a a sneaky con. She's like, "Oh no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you. We're in this together." Yeah. All right. So this movie made sixty five million worldwide on a budget of sixty two million. Hey, we're in the black. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not exactly sure how 
that all works out with the movie math that they do. They probably lost a billion dollars. I don't know. It had an 82% Rotten Tomato score. That's pretty high. And a 74% audience score. So audiences didn't like it quite as much as the critics did. Thinking about this movie and when it came out, I don't remember there being a big box office thing, but I do remember talking to a lot of people who rented it or something after the fact. So I had forgot that I had watched it, but I definitely watched it back then, which it kind of ruins it when it's a movie like this and you don't remember everything, but you kind of know what's, you know, like you can't just relive this movie again. It's also a movie where I feel like the title is not super connected, right? I think Matchstick Men is just another name for a con man, but at no point does it get mentioned in the script. It's not like the big catchphrase in the movie, whereas a lot, I think a lot of movies that have a catchy title. He does say it. Oh, he does say it? Whenever they're, whenever he's explaining to his daughter, he's like, and she's like, what do you mean? A flim flam man, a matchstick man. Like he oh, goes okay. like a whole list. Okay. So it's, cause I didn't uh, put a throwaway line. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah, it's just, I certainly didn't catch that. That's a good line. Matty G, what's the count in that briefcase? <laughs> <laughs> Looks like a lot less. <laughs> yeah. All right. So 14. Allison Lohman, who played Angela, came to the audition dressed as a 14 year old and in character. Ridley Scott didn't know her age until he asked her. At the time of the audition, she was 23. She doesn't look 23. Two, this is the second Nick Cage film to be scored by Hans Zimmer. The first was The Rock back in 96, and he would go on to score another one two years later in 2005 for The Weatherman. And one, this is the first Ridley Scott film for Warner Brothers since 1982's Blade Runner. What? Yeah. Wow. Which, of course, as you mentioned, here at TMC, we are exclusively <laughs> Warner Brothers Ridley Scott. <laughs> I have a bonus count, guys. All right. And this is a lot of numbers. So, <laughs> Nick Cage was 39. So we can assume Roy was the same. Allison Lohman's Angela was supposed to be 14. 14, yeah. So the characters were nearly 25 years apart. So obviously, this was a strictly father-daughter dynamic and impossible to be considered for a romance. But this is Hollywood. So I went down a dark and twisted road into the marriages of Nick Cage. Oh, God. (laughs) There have been five so far. (laughs) What? He was only four years older than his first and second wives, who were also famous, Patricia Arquette and Lisa Marie Presley. He was 20 years older than his third wife, and 19 years older than his fourth. That marriage only lasted four days, though. Finally, he just got married in February. And a belated congratulations from the captains. (laughs) His current wife is 30 years younger than him. So I'll just let those numbers speak for themselves. Man, he's entering uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, but he actually gets married. (laughs) Wait, how old is he today? He is 57. And his current wife is 27. Damn. Wow. I wonder if he's paid off all the... Didn't he have some tax issues? And that, that's why he was having all... Making anything under the sun that they offered him. He's on the up, though. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet, but... Have you seen Mandy? No. I've that's probably about something that. to watch. This there movie. was uh, talks for a while, but it fell through that he was going to do a live-action uh, remake of Tiger King. 
Oh yes, <laughs> somebody's too. doing it. I think that it's somebody's dramatic. doing a dramatic. Be, I think it's still be. going forward. It's just not him. Yeah, but he would do a good job. I, I saw the pictures of them side by yeah. side, and I was like, <laughs> "This could play." <laughs> and he's got the energy <laughs> for sure. El Dangeroso. Movie podcasts are cool. You should give us the narrative breakdown to go along with it. Act one. Roy lives a ritualistic life as a con artist in L.A. with the help of his apprentice, Frank. They focus on routine and short hustles to pay the bills and avoid detection. Frank would like to see them go after big fish and take more risks. But Roy, either due to his past experiences or a litany of anxiety disorders or both, resists. When Roy loses his meds and current prescriber, he finds Dr. Klein through Frank and is recommended to begin processing his past. He had been married years ago and left his pregnant wife and now wonders if he has a child. Dr. Klein contacts the ex and finds out there is a 14-year-old daughter named Angela who wants to meet. Although he is in over his head, he is excited to try to be a father to the troubled girl. Any thoughts on Act 1? All right, a couple thoughts. So the scene you just described uh, when he first meets the doctor and just seeing that play, that play out, it made me think of that new little you know meme going on on Twitter where people just type in a whole bunch of red flags. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Just that doesn't seem right. Red flags from Roy as a patient or red flags from Dr. Klein as a doctor? Well, from the doctor, but okay. just from... Uh, I was like, all right, there's the plot line. And uh, so, so there was that. And then um, second off, I thought the the whole scene at the first victim's house was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, you know, up there and, and uh, I looked it up and I'll get into this later, but filmed up in the Hollywood Hills, uh, you know, or San Fernando Valley area, Mulholland Drive and Allenwood Road. You can see the Allenwood Road sign in the shot as they uh, pull in. I just thought that was cool. Looked cool. I love it up there in California, but uh, so that you know, I think it appealed to me. But I, I like the dialogue too. I was like, <laughs> I'm gonna get me some of those L47s <laughs> as referenced in the the open. Anybody else uh, find some cool scenes? I don't know if it was just one scene, but just in general, the dynamic between the two partners in crime, I found really great right off the bat. Yeah, you can see how they complement each other. Like they have a cooperative relationship, but they're very different. And when they're casting this movie, I'm guessing uh, Nick Cage is the lead. He's the big get, right? If you cast him to be the more reserved person, I think Ridley Scott and whoever his casting director were have few options of somebody who can go over the top of Nick Cage and thank God they got Sam Rockwell because he's one of the few people who I feel like can, can even bump over that level of energy. Act two. Frank is thrilled when Roy has changed his tune and seems willing to attempt a long con with a Mark named Chuck. As they work that situation, Angela has come to stay with Roy for a long weekend because of a fight with her mother. The father is initially inconvenienced, but begins to bond with her. The daughter, in turn, is suspicious of his work and wants him to be honest. When Angela leaves the house without notice and returns later, the two get into a fight and Roy comes clean about his illegal activities. She is fascinated and wants to learn the trade. 
which he begins to show her, but he demands she avoid the lifestyle. Due to a complication, Angela has to help get a large sum of money from Chuck, and although they get away, Roy decides to cut off the relationship with Angela at the pleading of Frank, as she has a police record and could cause the team problems. What about Act 2, guys? So, two things. First was, I like the fact that Nicolas Cage, you could tell, <clears throat> was, quote, getting better with all of his issues. And that was obviously this new, his daughter was, in, you know, enhancing his life before destroying it, as kids do. And, <laughs> well, I mean, it's all fun. I mean, it's all fun and games for, like, the first six months when you have a child. And then after that, it's just, foop. Like all your money goes away. Spoken like a true non-father. <laughs> all your money goes away. Kid free captains. Just saying. There's this side of the table and that side of the table. I mean, it, every movie, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically, like he has a kid, fathers for six months, and then all of his money just freaking disappears. It's amazing how it works out. But I also liked the when you know the full story, you know, Frank dropping the, you know, she's in the books. She could be in the books. And he's like, you don't know that. Like, oh, have you ever been arrested? It's like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> and then anyway, so that has to get set up for the rest of the story and, and you know, the con and, and conning the con man. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that part. So this literally just occurred to me. But this is the second movie with Nicolas Cage, where we've dealt with him suddenly becoming a father and being unprepared for this new challenge in his life. I mean, that's literally what's going on in Raising Arizona yeah, as well. That ruined his life too, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and this is something that, thought, that I thought about the other day because of our conversations on Inside Man. Another movie with a safe deposit box as a significant plot point. <laughs> That's not a common plot point. Also, man and men in the titles. <laughs> yes. Hmm. The one thing that I would say, I was struck by it, and I don't think there was really ever a resolution, but Roy's reasoning to Angela for who he cons and why, who deserves to be a victim, is interesting. He says, old people, fat people, and people who want to be sold, and it kind of makes me wonder if he would have gotten into some more of those issues in therapy and what sort of past experiences led him to believe that those people are okay to mistreat and steal from. That's spoken from. <laughs> I'm just saying like, I'm like, that's that, if somebody said I, that to me, I'd be like, uh, so what happened to you, dude? What old fat person? Yeah. Treated you so poorly. The double whammy. Yeah. There is a, a sub narrative about uh, health and the system. Yeah. You know, unhealthy folks. We can, well, we get to it later in the next act, but what we think of. Something's leading me to believe that uh, Roy may not espouse health care for all <laughs> based on his <laughs> statements. Yeah. <laughs> Act three, Roy changes his mind and reunites with Angela because of what she means to him. But upon arrival home, finds Chuck holding a gun on Frank and demanding all his money back and continued payments. 
Angela comes out of the back room and shoots Chuck. Frank is sent away with Angela, but Chuck was only injured and knocks Roy out. He awakens in a hospital room being questioned by police. Roy summons Dr. Klein and gives him the access for Angela to get his life savings out of the bank and passes back out. This time, he awakens again and discovers that none of it was real. There was no Dr. Klein, Chuck, or Angela. They had all worked with Frank to betray him. A year passes, and Roy has a new legit job selling carpet and is married and expecting a child. He runs into Angela, who has also stopped conning and was also duped by Frank. Roy forgives her, and they share a moment reflecting on the good days in another life. What do you guys think about the final act? So I get the easy answer because I have all the cl- the climactic parts and all that. <laughs> but the reveal and downfall of Roy is brutal. We've kind of grown to like him even despite what he does because of his relationship with what he believes is his daughter. Mm-hmm. But the part I want to discuss with you guys is the epilogue because during research, I found out that the one year later ending wasn't in the book. That was something that Ridley Scott added uh, to sort of wrap up the movie. Do you think it hinders the movie? Do you think it, do you like it? Did you like it? Or do you think it should have just ended with him, you know, getting his due after all these years of conning people? It helps me because if it had just ended there, I wouldn't have felt like Roy necessarily learned anything. I mean, I guess he could have learned crime doesn't pay or something like that, but that putting that little ending on it makes me feel like he actually learned the benefit of having a relationship, which is why he pursued the grocery store clerk and was going to have a child of his own. He had grown, he had changed. And that's the sort of redeeming thing that I want to see in a a storyline like this. I don't know if it made it better or worse for me, but it changed the movie from uh, karma is a bitch ending (laughs) to, you know, more of, ah, there's a higher purpose ending. So, you know, I don't know. I wish he was a used uh, or a shoe salesman. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry for our carpet salesman fan out there. (laughs) You have huge. You do well in that market. Ultimately, I liked it too for two reasons. One, I really liked the interaction that they had. I thought it was nice without being too, you know, gushy. And it forced him to kind of get straight and become a functional member of society instead of stealing from people who are poor or not so well off or, or fat or, you know, whatever. Uh, I, if, if he had been stealing from rich people, I would have had no problem with it <laughs> because it a Robin Hood type story. Yeah, yeah. If it was a Robin Hood thing, but this wasn't the case. So I, I, I ultimately, I liked the ending. And I don't think it puts like too nice of a bow on it because right. Frank still is the real bad guy and he does get away. I mean, that's why we're doing this movie. Frank, as far as we know, gets all the money or a good portion of it. Sequel. I wouldn't mind seeing Frank's story. Can I work at a carpet store in LA and have that house? Yeah, <laughs> I'd like that too. <laughs> um, maybe he had already paid for the house. Like he didn't, he owned the house. So it was the same house at the end. Yeah. Dude, crime pays. <laughs> <laughs> he saved up a million bucks. I yeah. mean, yeah. Like, have you seen California real estate? Those uh, those other guys, like, they burned that cash, man. That wasn't that much money. It really wasn't. Like, 
that's gone. That's a, that's a cool car that depreciates. He had that house. He went in the end and you've <laughs> seen the real estate out there. Well, and that's another funny thing that something that kind of occurred to me is the carpets play such a big part in this movie. But given what people's style is now and considering that he had these OCD tendencies, that place would have been all hard surface floors, which would have been way easier to keep clean. It would yeah. have been a lumber liquidators <laughs> exactly. product, product spot. So I was like, oh man, you got to get out of the carpet world. So the one thing that I'll say about act three, and this is the culmination really of all three acts, is the most unbelievable part of the whole movie for me is how elaborate Frank's plan had to be and how much it had to change based on each thing that Roy did with each one of these people. And the number of associates he had to come up with. So they had been working together seemingly for years, and he had to come up with this Dr. Klein. He had to come up with Angela. Then he had to come up with Chuck. And then he had to come up with two people to play the detectives. And all these people to play these parts and be pretty reliable con men when you're dealing with somebody who should be adept at not getting conned. So I will criticize that for just being either you have to feel like Frank was a massive (laughs) genius or you have to be like, well, maybe a little plausible deniability or something there. Yeah. And going back to the red flags thing, since I had already seen the movie before, I, I kind of, but it had been a very long time. I didn't remember everything about it. But a lot of the stuff with Angela, I was just like, you never talked to your ex-wife. Yeah. Every time he dropped her off, she never went into a house. She like ran off or skateboarded off somewhere else. I'm like, you don't notice these things? Plus I'd be like, get in the house. Yeah. What are you doing? You know, it's just one of those things that I was just like, red flags. Red yeah, flag, that, red that's, flag. The, that's the father in you. You're like, you drop your kids off. You don't just like wait. You wait <laughs> until they walk into where, even if you're dropping them Tuck off roll, somebody else's house. Out. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to watch you go inside and then know that that's where you went. <laughs> I'm just stick trackers on them and get a few minutes of your life back. <laughs> Angela's whatever. I mean, I you got to think Frank had coached her up in some way. And I'm like, how did he get her to be that good? Because she was amazing. And she adapted to those situations. Like, I don't know how you, and like found ways to get Roy to, to divulge more information. Yeah. She's kind of linchpin of the whole thing. Cause if she doesn't do it, then the whole thing's blown. Everybody else was important, screwed. but Angela's stuff, like, and she had to like, know to, okay, I'm going to get emotional right here. And you know, whatever it was, I don't know. it was amazing. All right, up next, we have an exciting interview with a real, an actual psychiatrist, not a con person, Dr. Charity Herring. It's another Captain exclusive. We are joined today by Dr. Charity Herring, and she is a psychiatrist who will help us understand um, parts of this movie a little bit more. Dr. Herring, would you like to give us some background about yourself? Hi, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. I guess I'll start with saying I got into this field when I graduated from medical school in 2001 and and went on to do some training and residency and fellowship 
worked at a community mental health center for almost a decade and uh, then followed up by a little hospital work, inpatient work. And now I have a private practice in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Dr. Herring knows most of us, mainly because she has worked with three of the four captains' wives or at the time girlfriends. (laughs) But we're going to start off with um, a question about the film. So we're led to believe that one of the characters in the film is a psychiatrist. What does that title mean? And what is the difference between you and a psychologist? Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think it's kind of funny because when people think about psychiatrists, they tend to picture the old Sigmund Freud lay down on my couch and tell me about your dreams. Um, but actual psychiatry is, is a lot different. Um, and, and there are some crossovers with psychologists. Um, the two biggest differences between the two fields is the training and the, um, the expertise that uh, they end up utilizing in their practice. So psychiatrists are doctors they, uh, in, in medicine, either an MD or a DO. And uh, after medical school, they go on to specialize in psychiatry via residency and even further through fellowship versus psychologists um, go on to graduate school after uh, completing their undergraduate college career. And uh, psychologists are specialists in both talk therapy and or testing. So uh, you, you know, you can test the brain in multiple different ways, IQ tests, developmental tests, um, learning disorders, those sort of things can be tested, focus, attention. So they're really good at doing that. And they're also, they have quite a bit of training in therapy. On the other side of the coin, the psychiatrists focus uh, some on therapy as well. So we can do therapy. We're trained to do that. But the bigger piece, I would say, is medication management. Uh, because there is no one um, really that specializes in our field that does that. So a large part of the um, that workload typically falls to psychiatrists. So I would say rather than that Sigmund Freud picture, when you go to a real life psychiatrist these days, it's probably just going to be talking about your medications for your mood or ADHD or what have you. So anxiety disorders such as agoraphobia, Obsessive compulsive disorder and panic attacks are discussed in the film. And we were wondering how common these conditions like that are. It's more common than you would think. Um, you know, statistically, if you look at the, uh, the National Institute's uh, Mental Health, the NIMH, the most common of those three is going to be the panic attack disorder. And then uh, second most common is the um, agoraphobia and then obsessive compulsive is the least. So those numbers look uh, panic attack 2.7%, agoraphobia 1.3, and OCD comes in at 1.2. And that's just in the adult population. Those numbers are 18 and up. So in the film, Dr. Klein turns out to be part of the con. If someone was interested in seeing a psychiatrist, what are some good ways to determine their credentials and to make sure that they're legit? The best way to check out a physician would be to check in with your state medical board. That's that's the absolute gold standard way to check on your physician 
to see if their licensure is up to date and without any black mark, so to speak. Is there a specific website that people can go to to check check these things out? Yeah, they they do actually. Uh, the boards have websites, and I I can honestly say I've never gone and looked anyone up. Um, <laughs> so I don't know exactly how it would look from a patient's perspective, but. I do. Um, I've been on their website for myself because every year you have to renew your license. And I do think I recall seeing a place for providers and patients click here kind of thing. So that information is public, accessible by the public. So you can get that pretty easily. So when Dr. Klein prescribes, Dr. Klein prescribes a placebo to Roy to show him that he can function without the medication, is that really ethical? And if not, is there an ethical way to determine whether or not a person actually needs a prescription? So, yeah, that was really interesting when I uh, was watching that scene. I was thinking, what, what's going on here? Where's this going? <laughs> because they, most doctors don't typically just pass out um, pills in their office unless it's a situation where your doctor's giving you a sample of a new drug. So that was interesting to see that. But when I initially saw that he was just giving him a placebo, I, I didn't think that it was a, a hoax at that point. I, I thought, well, maybe this guy is kind of the old style psychiatry and he's more Freudian and he just is focused on the psychodynamic talking piece. And this is part of his therapy that he does. But you that's definitely Hollywood. You wouldn't see that going on out in the real world. Ethical, to answer the question, was it ethical? Absolutely. I would say that borders on an ethical practice because we, what we use to define whether something's ethical or not is if you know that there is a way to help someone with treatment, to help their illness, to help them get better, and you withhold that, that would be considered unethical. Uh, just like in clinical trials, when clinical trials are being conducted at some point, if it becomes obviously clear that the study drug is advantageous over the placebo effect, that it becomes unethical to continue to have subjects enroll and receive placebo. So doctor, what are some of your favorite movies with a character that is a psychiatrist, either because you just find it entertaining or because you think it's accurate or both? I don't know that I've seen, I've seen several movies that have psychiatrists and psychiatric themes. I don't know that I've really seen one that accurately portrays maybe glimpse here and there, but I, I have some of my favorites are Girl Interrupted, Angelina Jolie, Winona Ryder, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, classic Jack Nicholson. He did a great, he, he's just an amazing actor. And of course I had to throw in What About Bob? It's, that was a pretty funny, funny movie. All right. So if you, but if you had to pick one, what's it going to be? Are you going, what about Bob or one flew over the cuckoo's nest? I'm going to have to do the classic or to do the, the one flew over the cuckoo's nest. So how common would it be then for a psychiatrist to also do the therapy part of it? Or if not, do they partner with somebody to form their own practice or how does that work? I think it's pretty rare that you would find a psychiatrist that only did the talk therapy piece. There are, I think, a few out there. But what you tend to see more is uh, a lot of psychiatrists will 
either directly connect with talk therapists, LCSWs, or uh, case managers, uh, social workers, other folks that do therapy. Uh, they'll either directly connect with them in office together, or they will have more uh, indirect connections as far as just having some good referrals that they can send their patients to. Dr. Herring, uh, feel free to tell us a little bit about your specific practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have, I have a private clinic and we offer both telemedicine appointments as well as in-person appointments. I do work at the clinic myself, of course, but uh, we have a couple other uh, staff members, nurse practitioners and physician assistants that can also be of help in medication management. And we are happy to help. We see uh, ages 5 through 55 and give us a call if you uh, need to have an appointment. If We have a web page and it's TulsaFamilyPsychiatry.com and there is a um, new patient interest uh, form there. If you're interested, take a look, fill it out and we'll get back to you. Well, Dr. Herring, we'd, we'd like, again, we'd like to thank you for agreeing to come on the show and uh, give some insight into this portion of the film. And uh, we were lucky to have you. So thank you. Yeah, it was fun to do. Thanks for thinking of me. And uh, I'll have to check you guys out. Very cool thing that you do. I'm a big podcast fan. So very awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for that wonderful interview, Maddie G. And we will be right back after these messages. Uh, yeah. Do you find the captain's voices more sensual and sumptuous than Barry White and Leon Phelps combined? Then I have great news for you that it's definitely not disgusting. We want to let you know that we also release many episodes in between our deep dives. Coming up next week will be On the Horizon, where we will discuss some of the upcoming movie releases for November. In fact, I believe that if you interact with the captains on the social media, such as the Twitters and the Instagram, then maybe we'll release special After Dark podcasts of your favorite captain. Perhaps Movie Matt is your flavor. Well, maybe he'll recap the latest Apple keynote or list off the specs of the new iPhone or iPad. Is money, Chris, the whipped cream and cherry on top of your ice cream sundae? Maybe we'll release a pot of him reading the classiest, most sophisticated skank quotes. Oh, excuse me, that stock quotes. Sorry about that. Either way, tune in weekly to get your captain fix. Now, can I get a ride home? Because my car uh doesn't exist, so... If you're looking for psychiatric care in northeastern Oklahoma, please consider Tulsa Family Psychiatry and Wellness. You can find them on the web at TulsaFamilyPsychiatry.com, and their phone number is 918-268-9578. And we are back. Money? This is Dimitri. I met you at that club Rage the other night. I really liked your leather and wondered what movies best compare to Matchstick Man. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so this one was a little difficult because it's it's kind of on its own a little bit. Yeah. So I was thinking the Oceans movies have 
them double crossing Terry Benedict several times. So I think at least twice. And if you didn't know, same screenwriter, Ocean's Eleven in this. The Hustle with Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson has some con man rivalry towards the end of the movie. That's probably a lesser known movie that not a lot of people have seen. And third, I'm going to go with Dirty Rotten Scoundrels um, since there's a con man competition in that. Yeah. And they both have an older con artist and a younger con artist learning from them and only to have both be bested by a younger, much younger female. So the only other one I had, which I don't know if any of you guys have seen this, it's a much older movie, but Paper Moon was the story. It's like a 70s Ryan and Tatum O'Neill, which are father-daughter actors in real life, and they were a, a conning team. So I've not seen that one. It's good. Not exactly the same. Uh, like you mentioned, this one's kind of on its own, but and this has more to do with kind of spy stuff too, but spy game, just because you got Robert Redford and Brad Pitt, you know, older guy, younger guy learning from, and then, you know, one, you know, uh, turns on him. And also the score mm-hmm. with uh, De Niro and Ed Norton Jr. Anyone else in that? Junior? He's a junior? Yeah, wasn't Ed Norton in that one? I didn't know Ed Norton was a junior. Sorry, Ed Norton. <laughs> That's what I was asking about. I didn't know he was a junior. So. Those kind of came to my mind, even though they're not the same. Yeah. All right. That brings us to cinematography. Some say the most dangerous job in <laughs> movie business. Oh, God. Oh, wow. <laughs> Let me show you something I learned in Taiwan. <laughs> It is the work of English cinematographer John Mathiason. He is just one of many filmmakers who broke out from the video music industry in the late 80s and early 90s, having been nominated for VMAs on Nirvana's Heart-Shaped Box and Madonna's American Pie. He has now served as DP on over 30 features. Matchstick Men was his third of five pairings with director Ridley Scott and has done three other films with Scott's children. Some of his notable work includes Hannibal, Kingdom of Heaven, X-Men First Class, and Logan. He was Oscar-nominated for both Gladiator and The Phantom of the Opera. His most recent film was 2019's Detective Pikachu, and he is currently in post-production on his first MCU project, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. I can't wait. The film was shot on 35mm film and anamorphic lenses on the Panavision Panaflex Platinum camera. It has an overall moody blue hue, but pops of the color pink, which seem to be a clue to the viewer of something important to the plot. Pink pops. Light. Bluish hue. Yes. Matthiason's lighting techniques bring life to Roy's agoraphobia, as interiors are dark and comforting while exterior shots are overexposed to the point of making the audience just as uncomfortable as the protagonist. What did you guys make of the visual aesthetic? I liked it. It kind of had that, um, I want to just say California look, you know? It reminded me in some ways of the, the coloring of what you saw in Traffic, which was a similar time, time to release. Um, obviously a very different film. 
uh, and shot very differently, but there was that same kind of gritty, you know, sepia-toned, almost sepia-toned uh, uh, look to the film that I thought was cool. Yeah, I would say gritty was a good, in the way they used the lighting sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had the the film grain and stuff kind of added a little bit to the grittiness. Kind of like when we just had recently talked about Lincoln Lawyer, it's not an ultra-glamorous L.A., and maybe it's because it's not the the Hollywood area. It's well, more of that. It's gentrified now, Valley. so. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, the fact that Roy hates the outside, so he was really more uncomfortable. Like, every time he's outside, he's wearing sunglasses, and it feels like the light is still pouring in, but... And it was like the when they pulled up, you know, the scene I referenced earlier when they pulled up to the first that couple uh-huh. couple's house, you know, it made me just think of like old people who aren't really rich but have enough money, just enough to like spend too much time at a casino <laughs> and have a weird amount of like gold jewelry or something. And, you know, it just kind of had that colored vibe to it. And they got lucky with the house they're in because now it's worth like five times what they bought it for. <laughs> yeah, probably more than that. They probably spent, they probably bought it for 50000 Yeah. You know what? We can do a deep dive fact check because <laughs> I have the address of that house. So so we'll loop back to that here in a minute. We'll, we'll find it out. We'll yeah. know. I'm not sure. There wasn't, there wasn't a lot of dramatic camera work in this. I think one of my favorite shot scenes is kind of the way that we see Nicolas Cage sitting in his car during the laundromat con and he's like talking about his daughter at the time Angela being like avoid the cameras at the ATM and just like they do a good job of like you can tell he's still uncomfortable but that seems to be like the calmest that he is the entire movie while being outside because he's there's an emotional expression that you get from him uh, a relief, a happiness that we don't really see from hardly any in the movie. Yeah, like you mentioned, there's not really, I mean, no scenes like, you know, Gladiator is just a yeah, beautiful movie. Sure. This is a different kind of movie. You don't, there's not anything like that that you need. The one thing that kind of popped out to me was, and you mentioned it earlier, he was DOP on one of my favorite videos of all time, Heart Shaped Box, and that video is very bright, like overly saturated bright. And whenever Frank or whoever it is like opens the blinds, like how bright that is, like it's just not sunshine coming in. Like it is yeah. overpowering yeah. brightness. I I kind of picked up on that with the similarities. Yeah, I was like, close that door, <laughs> close those blinds. Should we loop loop back? I just got in touch with our fact checkers. <laughs> right. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Much like my neighborhood, great elementary school, poor high school. And middle school. Uh, this place. This is the house of the couple that he cons at the beginning. Beep! Sorry, I didn't drive. <laughs> in, San Fr- in, in Los Angeles, California, it's, it's uh, Captain Estimate. <laughs> <laughs> it's Captainist. <laughs> Captainist. Great sponsorship opportunity. Um, is $2.192 wow. million. Dollars. Wow. It's 30-day change on the Captain Ticker account <laughs> is 
it's gone at fifteen grand in, in value. That's seven hundred and eighty-five dollars a square foot, despite the poor high school. We could buy like seven seven equivalent houses. <laughs> when did it sell last? Or what, when did was it built? And what's the square footage? It was built in nineteen sixty-two. It's on a point two six acre lot. It has zero parking spaces. <laughs> um, and let's see here. It is 2,793 square foot, a four bed, four bath house. Well, that's bigger than I thought it was. Yeah, me four too. Four beds and baths. And that's small bedrooms and small bathrooms. The shots uh, did not do it justice. And it's a longer house. Okay. In real life. Definitely ranch style. It's a shower. It actually does not have a seller's history, but what I do see from the public tax history is that it would appear that around 2015 they did some significant uh, uh, improvements because the assessed tax value, these folks have got some good lawyers, went from 170 grand up to 400 grand, and in 2020, holy yeah, they've got some great lawyers. The tax assessment on the house is only four hundred and forty-one thousand dollars. They're literally paying a little less than six grand in property taxes. Well, they likely got locked in, like we were talking about, where they definitely paid less than a hundred thousand dollars for this house. Whenever it, I mean, we'll just say a hundred thousand, which is an overestimate. So, if they bought this, they profited. They're up two million dollars since the sixties, <laughs> which is, you know. A lot of money for some people. <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me, guys, we have got uh, uh, our spinoff show, Too Many Realtors. It's available on TMC Plus. Get your subscription today. Irene, my supervisor just stepped into my office and he would love to talk to you about music and sound. Can you hold for just a sec? All right, so the soundtrack itself is made up of mostly big band and crooners, several selections of Bobby Darin, Frank Sinatra, Wayne Newton, Andy Williams, Herb Albert, and the Tijuana Brass, also thrown in there. Some of the more recent selections include Kid Rock, which I feel we could have done without. I have to say, this has to be our first Kid Rock song in a movie. (laughs) But I did appreciate hearing How Sweet It Is by Marvin Gaye and More Than This by Roxy Music. The score was composed by the great Hans Zimmer, which we have discussed before in this podcast for his work on The Dark Knight Rises. He still only has one Academy Award for Best Score for The Lion King, though he's been nominated 11 times. However, I wouldn't be surprised if he'd be if he was nominated again next award season as, as he composed music for both No Time to Die and Dune this year. And also, I don't think these will be included, but Wonder Woman 84 and he did one other big movie I can't remember at the moment. He's also one of the few people who, several people who we've talked to over the years of doing this podcast have listed as either their favorite composer or favorite person in the industry who wasn't a director or actor. So he has a huge impact whether or not he has the awards. Yeah, plus he like he has some kind of like collaborative thing where a bunch of composers work underneath him too and showing the ropes and all that kind of stuff. So that's that's pretty cool. I thought it would be worth noting that I think that sometimes we associate artists in a certain light due to their repeated involvement with specific co-creators. An example of this is, as a many, as many of us, I'm sure myself included, when we think of Hans Zimmer, we think of the great scores he wrote for the 
Christopher Nolan movies, you know, recency bias and all that. Uh, and rightfully so. They're bold, excellent works. And they're both impactful and memorable. But composers are artists and they're very versatile. This score is definitely in the more jazzy big band mold, uh, but is also playful and pensive. A lot of them have an Italian feel and some even a carnival atmospheric quality. He also does well to throw in anxiety and tension feels, uh, which keep the listener apprehensive, uh, which obviously pairs well with Roy's psyche and journey in the film. But I'll be honest, if you played this score for me and asked me who it was, I would not have, I probably would not have guessed it was Hans Zimmer. Would you have known right away that it was this movie if you just cold started playing? No, because I don't think so either. I've only seen it one time, so. However, onto the sound department. This movie wasn't nominated for any Academy Awards. However, supervising sound editors Karen Baker Landers and Per Halberg would go on to win the Academy Award for Best Sound Editing in 2008 for The Bourne Ultimatum and in 2012 for Deep Dialum Skyfall. Ooh. And re-recording mixer Michael Minkler has been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Sound or Best Sound Mixing 13 times and has won thrice for Black Hawk Down, Chicago, and Dreamgirls. Anyone else have anything they want to add on sound music? Oh, I was just thinking about how like this soundtrack is good, but I think it's the kind of good where it doesn't like overpower right. the film, and, it, and the film doesn't need that from right. it. Exactly. Like it, it's it's matched well to what's going on, because like when you say Hans Zimmer and Ridley Scott. There's like these certain tones that are used in Gladiator and like three or five other movies right around that same era where I'm like, but the I did love all of the uh, like jazzy big band Sinatra type sounding stuff in this. Antiques. They wait for no man. So tell us about the production design movie, Matt. <laughs> well, Matty G, thank you for the sound of music. <laughs> uh, looked around and didn't see many Apple products used, but I did notice a Motorola LX2 pager. There weren't, you know, it, I don't think they were beepers. They were pagers, which uh, for those less technical of the era indicates when you could get the words you didn't have to make the words out of the uh, alarm clock <laughs> okay. numbers that were on the beeper. They were often used to spell boobs. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the day, I had a pager. Did you guys have a pager? Any other kind of One ones? of my jobs, I had a pager. I didn't deal drugs, so no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, real world. Um, yeah, we had a family pager, so if one, because before cell phones, that was the only way to really get a hold so i remember in junior high like if i went somewhere yeah take the pager so if we need to get a hold of you i had a pager i had my own phone line which is really my dad's fax line <laughs> but i thought i was so freaking cool i say that sarcastically uh but anyway so this film was shot all around los angeles they took advantage of you know their backyard very much the you know, Culver City area, up into the hills, the Laurel Valley. You can find some of the many homes, uh, which we already referenced earlier. John, can you give me a beep? Beep. Street in a residential area, uh, which was actually in the Venice Culver City area, which was uh, Nicolas Cage, uh, Roy Walker's first home where they cut to right after that generic, uh, you know, shot probably from, you know, Chapter 4. <laughs> or KTLA Sky 5, you know, one of them. Okay, so lots of shots filmed all around the park, public park, 
which was Veterans Memorial Park in Culver City. Cute little neighborhood, man. Like, cool area. That diner that they went to uh, was then known as Pepe's Gallery, which is now known as KJ's Diner and Restaurant, located just north of LAX in Westchester. It is actually located catty corner to the bowling alley that is seen throughout the film, which is in AMF Bowling. We have one of those in Tulsa. Yep. So the parking garage is actually the Anaheim Convention Center parking garage. That's where I do all my cons. Which is where the the Anaheim Convention Center stood in for the airport because they weren't allowed to film actually at LAX. Right. 9-11. You know. Um, the parking lot scenes were Dodger Stadium. Just missed out. Yeah, just missed out. Yeah, I'm not very happy about that. Let's take a like a captain sports breakout. I don't like <laughs> our World Series setup. Hey, I don't either. My team fell on the other side. Red Sox went out on the other side. So I'll 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 bang on a trash can to that. So the furniture store was known at the time as the Carpeteria. <laughs> oh, it really was a carpet place. I thought that was a strip club. <laughs> Experiment Rhino. It very well may be in some area. I mean, I've been on like what is it, uh, I forty, which keep going, keep going west. Um, it's uh, now at an L and S Carpets once again. Wow, in the Laurel Laurel Canyon area, but it is actually in North Hollywood. Those were the main spots. Did any other production scenes stick out to a captain? I just wanted to mention the daily drivers of the two leading characters. I knew it. First off, Frank drives a 2001 Ford Mustang GT, which seems to lend itself to his bigger-than-life style and ridiculous cowboy hat. <laughs> In contrast, Roy drives a much more reserved 2003 Ford Crown Victoria LX. This also may have been a necessity if he was regularly posing as an agent from the Federal Trade Commission and would be believable to possible marks. The one thing we can conclude is that if you know someone who drives a Ford, they are likely a con artist. Well, what do you, what do you drive, Bill? I believe I came here in a Ford. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> so, uh, well. Matchstick man. Flim flam man. That's what they call me. So I want to loop back for a second because there was a strip club in the film. <laughs> Spearmint Rhino, right? <laughs> yes, sir. That came out quick. I know what it is. Yeah. Wow. I think I think you let me borrow your... Uh... <laughs> A, a book of matches from there once or something. Mm. Mm. Are they vaccinated? <laughs> of course. What's the vaccination policy? All we wear is masks and experiment <laughs> right up. <laughs> <laughs> the record player that Roy owns is oh. the Techniques SLQ200 two-speed quartz direct drive automatic turntable that was sold between 1983 and 1985. Had an MSRP of $140, which would be like spending $350 for a turntable today. I did find one on eBay in excellent condition with its original box. I bet it's way more. $185. Okay. Well, not bad. It's not bad. Ooh. A lot of that vintage stereo equipment Snap. people like better than the modern stuff. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So with that, it is time for the conclusion. Let's hear the captain's ratings. Money, take it away. All right, to the conclusions. Johnny Dangerous, you're not the first one this time. <laughs> I think that's about two times now in a row, that's maybe. three, I think. Three in a row, three. crazy. 
crazy. It's this ranked choice voting, <laughs> which is, I think this is our last one. So well, for a while, well, for a while. Yeah. So I am first. Oh, yes. Okay. So it's an enjoyable movie. I think that the fact that I had already seen it and didn't really remember based on the name that I had already seen it kind of tells me that it didn't make much of an impression. Although I kind of knew the storyline, but wasn't sure how they all got to there in the end. So I'm going to give it three captains. Hmm. Maddie G, what'd you think? Well, I had seen this movie once before, not in theaters, but a rental shortly after its video release. I remembered liking it, but kind of like you, I didn't really remember a whole lot about it other than um, he was a con man and I remember him getting beat up at his house. (laughs) Upon watching this movie again, I still really liked it. I think the acting's good. I really liked the interactions between Roy and Angela and between Roy and Frank. I would have liked to have seen a couple more Roy and Frank con jobs. Insert joke here. Yeah. (laughs) And Nicolas Cage, you know, he's got a reputation for, you know, going too over the top and outrageous, but I thought he did well not to do that with this character, which made the times that he did kind of blow up seem earned. Uh, As much as I went on about the music, I did enjoy the the score. Ridley Scott, all-time great, and I... like that although he's had many blockbuster successes, he still likes to do smaller movies like this one. While this movie isn't great, I think it's good to very good. I gave it 3.5 captains. All right. Johnny Dangerous. Okay. What'd you think? This is just a fun and rewatchable film for me. It isn't necessarily noteworthy in terms of being unlike anything made before, but it is so well executed. Nicolas Cage isn't one of my favorite actors because his films and performances seem to alternate between very good and very bad. However, I feel like this is one of his better performances, as he manages to be relatable and realistic with a very complex character. We have to find him believable as a manipulative criminal, a lonely person suffering with mental illness, and a bumbling dad trying to make up for mistakes of the past. He succeeds at all three. The movie's protagonist, like that, could easily be overshadowed, but the supporting roles like Sam Rockwell, Alison Lohman, Bruce Altman, and Bruce McGill all prove worthy of matching his wild emotional states. When it comes to Ridley Scott, I am a fan, and Matchstick Man ranks pretty high for me, somewhere around number five out of the 25 so far. It is really different from what I expect from him, much smaller in scope and budget, but I like the faults in the characters, the interactions between them, the misdirection, and finally, the moral of the story. It might not be anyone's favorite film, but it's hard for me to imagine someone hating it either. When it comes to rating films, money, you're not a bad guy, you're just not a very good one. Matchstick Men deserves 3.5 pygmies. (laughs) All right. That brings Damn. us to the highest rating, which I don't know how often that happens. <laughs> this is this is like we need a, a captain first. Sound. This is almost like it was a short film or something. <laughs> it's like you know, it gets a uh, what half a point for getting getting made and finishing it, and then 
another half or it's under 120 minutes minutes. that gives it a three-point bump i've been been thinking about the basic criteria the movie matt review like getting funded i mean damn like that's half the battle right uh getting completed is the second half of the battle knowing is half the just so you know like we're not going to be doing any movies that weren't funded or completed (laughs) if that helps with your ranking system you you guys like oh you don't know what i'm about to nominate Actually, I, I we we're, we're there's not going to be nominations. You guys don't know what I'm going to golden ticket. So this film, you know, it fits uh, in a unique category in movie Matt's uh, view of films. I call it the can't sleep, stressed out, took my mind away from it category. I believe I watched this one night when I was stressed out or something was going on in my life, and I needed a distraction, and it was on TNT. They know drama. Could have been on another <laughs> channel. I don't I don't know. I really don't. Could have been on HBO, but I don't think it was because I faintly remember it taking like seven hours, which sounds like <laughs> TNT. It is a captivating movie. Uh Roger Ebert. Um like as cool as a guy I know with a little extra T. Uh he rated the film, you know, four of four stars. He called it so absorbing that it cuts away from the plot. Interesting quote. It's high praise. I liked it. I thought it was solid. I thought it was good. It was distracting. It was it was like captivating. Like it kind of pulled me in. You know, there's some good acting. There's some borderline great acting. I don't know that it's should have ever been nominated for best picture or anything like that. And it wasn't. <laughs> and it wasn't, you know. So maybe the system works. But I really did enjoy it. I thought it was a solid movie so i put it in my solid at the upper end of my solid category i'm gonna give this 3.75 captains that brings us 3.4 captains which makes it even keel we have had a 3.4 very recently on inside man with the matchstick men man inside things (laughs) v for vendetta dark knight rises hans zimmer and 10 Things I Hate About You. Matty G, what can you see from the crow's nest? Coming up on the next deep dive, Movie Matt has used his golden ticket pick on the 2015 biographical comedy drama tragedy, The Big Short. Directed by Adam McKay and starring a slew of people, including Christian Bale, Ryan Gosling, Steve Carell, and Brad Pitt. At time of recording, this is currently streaming for free on Tubi or Pluto TV. Join us as each captain reenacts the non-sequitur explanation points of the film. Right now, it looks like Movie Matt will play Anthony Bourdain, which I'm sure he will like. (laughs) Money Chris as economist Richard Thaler, of course. And myself as Selena Gomez at the blackjack table. And finally, he's been working on his Australian accent. El Dangeroso (laughs) himself in the bubble bath as Margot Robbie. It's a good thing this is an audio medium. All this and more on the next deep dive. (laughs) Sounds exciting, guys. I was, I mean, I this is why Matty G you do this, because I was gonna be like, in this next film, we debate is do we have hyperinflation or is it transitory? What we, will things look like? We can is still this get a there. preview of the future? <laughs> hyperinflation is 50%, so we definitely don't have hyper, hyperinflation. Yet. <laughs> Looking forward to that. 
as we hope all our listeners are. As always, this brings to a close another episode of The Deep Dive. You thought I was going to forget, but it's time for our favorite quotes or the quote we're going to end the film the thing with. (laughs) (laughs) Film thing with. Well, there's a couch if you want to sit or over there if you prefer or the couch. (laughs) If you're going to get wet, might as well go swimming. Mr. Schicklicker, you waited too long. No prize for you. You guys got any of those L47s? <laughs> I got one right here. Well, that brings to the close, as I said, another episode of The Deep Dive. As always, we thank our listeners for listening. You made it this far, and that means a lot. What would mean a lot to us, a lot more to us, is if the listener took it, took the minute to leave a review in like at least a five-star rating on all of the podcast platforms remember though if you don't know where those are you can find us at a moviepodcast.com wherever you find your podcasts online be sure and like us on the gram Hey, this is guest host Paul. You should check out the Captain's website at moviepodcast.com. And while you're at it, subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. Come on, you know you want to.